Our first reading is from Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Our second reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal those who are ill and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it, be, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Thank you, Izzy. Well, we're going to be in that passage now, so if you want to keep that open, that'd be really helpful. 
But I'm going to pray as we come to look at it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Please help us to listen to what you have to say to us this morning. Please would I be speaking your words and please would we all be encouraged and challenged where we need to be. Amen. What happens when the kingdom is proclaimed? That is the big question that our passage this morning is tackling. What happens when the kingdom of God is proclaimed? Or to bring it right into our laps, what happens when I tell my friend about Jesus? Just imagine that situation with me, telling your friend about Jesus. As you think about that situation, how does it make you feel? What do you think is going to happen? See, my natural tendency is to think, well, I don't think they really want to hear this, or it's just going to be rejected. It feels weak and it feels insignificant. Or perhaps you're a bit more positive than me. It's always a good thing. It feels great to have shared the good news of Jesus with my friend. But is that all? Is it just a a conversation and, and that's it? For the people who were first reading Luke's gospel, the stakes were much higher. Rather than just facing social rejection, telling their friends about Jesus might cause them to be arrested, or even worse, killed. They'd really have to consider whether it was worth it, especially if it's just a conversation, and that's it. What happens when the kingdom is proclaimed? Well, Luke wants us to see this morning that far more takes place when the kingdom is proclaimed. He wants us to think bigger. Far more goes on when just one person tells someone else about Jesus. See, when the kingdom is proclaimed, there are massive results. We should realise how important this really is, and therefore the urgency of the task at hand. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember that Jesus has just said that proclaiming the kingdom of God is urgent. As we thought with the children, it's his first priority. And he's told three different people uh, that following him should come first. Just have a look at chapter 9, verse 59 on the other side of my page here. He said to another man, that's Jesus, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. See, Jesus isn't saying that his followers should disrespect their families, but he is saying that following him and proclaiming his kingdom is even more important than that. The stakes are high. Go and proclaim the kingdom, he says to this man. So what happens when the kingdom of God is proclaimed? Well, let's take a look at our passage this morning. The first thing to see is that the worldwide harvest is collected. The first thing to see is the worldwide harvest is collected. Just have a look at verses 1 to 3 with me. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was going to go. 
He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, if you remember a few weeks back, actually, the last time that I was preaching, we were looking at Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, we saw the 12 disciples being sent out to proclaim Jesus. We were seeing that you don't have to see Jesus to hear Jesus. And in many ways, our passage this morning is very similar. But there are some differences. You might have realised that as we read it. What differences are there? Well, one of the big differences is the number of people who are involved. The number has gone up from 12 to 72. The size of the mission has increased. But is there a reason why Jesus has chosen 72? Couldn't you have just rounded it up to 80? I mean, 72 is very specific. Well, 72, or if you have a footnote of the Bible, some manuscripts say 70. It does have some meaning to it. You see, this number, it pops up all over the Bible. The big place, though, that you're going to find it is right back at the start of the Bibles in Genesis chapter 10. Now, I was going to get Izzy to read this, um, but because it's long and complicated and because I, I love her too much, I thought otherwise. Husband points there. But if you were to go to Genesis 10, you'd find a list. You'd find a long list of the nations of the earth. So if we were to connect this, well, it looks like Luke is using that number. Just guess how many nations there are in that long list back in Genesis 10. 72, you've got it. In fact, in our versions that we have of the Old Testament, the number is either 72 or it's 70, just like here. So it's extremely likely that Luke is connecting us to that passage. So again, if we connect the two together, we see that the 72 here, they're meant to represent the world. The worldwide mission that the good news of Jesus is going to take. But notice also how these 72 are described. Just have a look at verse 1 again. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. These are others. These are ordinary people following the Lord Jesus. See, we don't know their names. We don't know much about them before this or after this, actually. The point is, they're 72 ordinary people. 72 ordinary people who are sent before Jesus into every town and place where he is going to go. In fact, the way that Luke describes these 72 ordinary people is the same way that he describes John the Baptist. Just flick back in your Bibles, just flick back a page or so, to Luke chapter 7, verse 27. Talking about John the Baptist, Jesus said this. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. So let's just connect all these dots. These 72 ordinary followers, they're sent with the same authority as John the Baptist. Just like him, they are messengers. And just like him, they're being sent ahead of Jesus. And if you were to look really carefully at that verse in Luke chapter 7, you'd see that these people are sent with the same authority as an Old Testament prophet. See, they're sent before the king 
to declare that the king is coming. Back to Luke chapter 10. What are these 72 being called to do? It's in verse 2. They're to go out into the harvest. Now verse 2 is quite famous. You might recognise it. Perhaps you know it already. But I reckon that we probably or usually misunderstand this verse. I reckon that we probably think this verse actually says something like this. The harvest is few and the workers are few. So ask the Lord to grow the harvest and to send the workers. See, we think there's not many out there who want or need to hear the good news of the kingdom, to hear about Jesus. But that's not what Jesus says here, is it? He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You see, there are so many people out there that are ready to hear this message. The issue is actually that there are not enough harvesters. There's not enough workers. See, as the farmer's gone and he's sown his seed, it's fallen on good soil. And it's yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. And so Jesus can tell these ordinary people to pray for workers to go out into the harvest field. But just notice how that prayer is answered. You see, it's not a prayer that is left empty. The Lord of the harvest is actually standing there right with them. And he answers the prayer right there and then. How so? Have a look at verse 3. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. I am sending you, Jesus says to those 72 ordinary followers. So what happens then when the kingdom is proclaimed? Well, our first point this morning, we need to think bigger. The worldwide harvest is collected. But just notice once again, I want to make this plainly obvious to us, who these people are. You see, they're not those who've been trained or taught. They're not a special class of people. They don't wear a special type of clothes, for example. These are just 72 ordinary followers of the Lord Jesus. And their only qualification is that they've been sent by Jesus. In fact, they're just like you and they're just like me. I mean, our situation isn't exactly the same as theirs. See, they're living on the other side of the cross to us. Jesus hasn't died yet. He's going there. We live on the other side of that. But the call is the same from Jesus. These people are declaring that Jesus is coming for the first time. We're called to declare that Jesus is going to come for a second time. It's a different yes, but in many ways a very similar call. There is a worldwide harvest. There is a plentiful harvest. And it needs workers to go and get it. So will you? And it all happens in the ordinary moments of life, as the school drop-off is starting to wind up again. Do you see yourself going out into the world? As we have conversations with our family, do we realise that we're on mission for Jesus? 
You see, as the six-year-old tells their granny about Jesus, all the way up to the office worker telling their boss about the kingdom, Christians are taking part in this work. And they're speaking with the same authority as a John the Baptist, as an Isaiah, as an Elijah. And they're taking part in collecting that worldwide harvest. That's hardly a weak or insignificant thing, is it? So what happens as the kingdom is proclaimed? Well, firstly, the worldwide harvest is collected. But verse 3 says slightly more than that, doesn't it? Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, I'm not a shepherd, nor the son of a shepherd, but even I know that verse 3 sounds like foolish advice. But it leads us on to our second point this morning. What happens when the kingdom is proclaimed? Well, it brings division. You can see that in verses 4 to 16. See, as these workers are sent out into the harvest field, they're going out like lambs among wolves. I mean, you only have to watch a few moments of a David Attenborough documentary, don't you, to know what that's going to look like. This task isn't an easy one, and Jesus is under no false illusion that it will be. But the task is urgent. That's why they aren't to greet people on the road. It's not being rude. It's actually an urgency thing here. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to be saved. So they need to get on with the task at hand. And again, similar to Luke 9, we see the people are sent out without resources. The idea being, like then, the people should receive the messengers. The harvest is plentiful, remember? So as they go, they should be welcomed, they should be provided for. And when people do that, they'll show that the message of the kingdom has been received. But let's just pause there. What is the message of the kingdom? Well, it's there in verse 5, actually. Jesus says this to them. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. Now, this isn't a hippie thing. This isn't a 1960s phrase. This isn't a peace man as you come into someone's house. No, Luke is, Luke's already explained to us what peace is. We've seen it, actually, a few times through Luke's Gospel so far. But right at the start, right at the start of Luke's Gospel, back in chapter 1, we find a man who's called Zechariah. And he's talking about his son. And he says this. Here it is on the screen for you. I'm going to move this way so you can see it. He says this. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Do you know who Zechariah was talking about there? It's the same person I've been talking about already, actually. It's John the Baptist. So, the, once again, these ordinary followers of Jesus, well, they're just like him. They have the same message of him, the message of salvation, the message of forgiveness of sins. The message that leads to peace with God. Plain and simple, these ordinary followers are to share the gospel with people. The proclamation of the kingdom, as we're thinking about. Now that's either going to lead to acceptance, or it's going to lead to rejection. Acceptance by being taken in and being cared for. 
or rejection, meaning that the messengers are going to have to leave the town. Either way, the same message is being given. Peace, and if you look at verses 9 and 11, the kingdom of God has come near. But the emphasis is more on rejection, isn't it? In this passage, it's more on rejection. Did you see that? See, from verse 9 onwards, Jesus tells these ordinary followers far more about rejection. And that's because proclaiming the kingdom brings rejection, or brings division. But hang on just a minute. If this really is good news, if this really is news of the kingdom of God, where there is forgiveness of sins and peace with God made available, why would it bring division? Surely if this is God's plan for the whole world, for the whole of time, it would be welcomed with open arms. Has something gone wrong? You see, that's a question that we might have today. And that's a question that Theophilus, the original reader of this book, would have had. And in order to understand that, in order to understand this, we need to remember that this is news of a kingdom. Now, you might have seen in America the news about the Chaz. Now, the Chaz is the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Basically, it's an area of America that has decided to throw off the reign, for lack of a better word, of the US president. It basically refuses to acknowledge the power and the control of the United States government. Now, whatever you think about that whole scenario, just imagine for a moment if Donald Trump was to announce, or to tweet more likely, that he was coming to visit. It's not going to go down well, is it? Well, that's just a small picture of what is going on here. For the kingdom to be proclaimed, it means that you have to say the king is here. The issue is, there are a number of other would-be kings already in place. Now, if you've ever read the little booklet, Two Ways to Live, you've probably seen this image before. There you go, there's the image. We reject the rightful king, that's what the crown over the world, the circle there's the world, we reject the rightful king, and instead we take the crown and we put it on our own heads. So basically, whenever someone is proclaiming the kingdom, they are saying to that person, you're not the king, God is. And that's what the disciples have been doing so far. You see those place names here, uh, what have we got? We've got Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Well, that's exactly what they've been doing. They've rejected Jesus as the king. They're, pe- they're places that have seen what Jesus is doing and have decided to say, nah, thank you very much, I don't want that. And in fact, that's been the story throughout history. You see, Jesus names three other places and he alludes to one more. So he talks about Sodom, doesn't he? A place that is known uh, for rejecting God's messengers in Genesis chapter 19. In verse 14, he talks about Tyre and Sidon, other places that rejected God's messengers. And all of those places, they were judged quite famously. The people at the time of Jesus would have known that. And in verse 15, well, we get an allusion to the king of Assyria. Now, Izzy read uh, that passage to us earlier from Isaiah. This is about the king of Assyria. You see, the king of Assyria in Isaiah's day, well, he'd rejected God's reign. And again, he rejected God's messenger. He thought that he could rise himself to heaven and to be the king over everything. Essentially, he thought that he could take God's place. He thought he could take that crown and put it on his own head. 
That's what rejecting the proclamation of the kingdom looks like. And that's what those places at the time of Jesus had chosen to do too. Places that reject the messenger and reject the king. All because of pride. All because they want to remain the king. And that's what Jesus says, isn't it, in verse 16. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. You see, to listen to the ordinary messengers, the ordinary disciples, the ordinary followers, is to listen to Jesus. But to reject the messengers, was to reject Jesus, isn't it? In fact, think bigger than that. To reject the messenger is to reject the one who sent Jesus. To reject the messengers is to reject God. So what is happening as the kingdom is proclaimed? Well, it brings division. So let's just bring that closer to home. What is happening when you tell your friend about Jesus? Well, this passage says one of two things, doesn't it? Either acceptance or rejection. In fact, those are the only two responses there are, aren't they? To accept the king or to reject him. To say, I don't know, isn't really, uh, well, it's not really an answer, it's still rejection. There's a, there's a video actually on our church YouTube channel, if you haven't seen it yet, that talks more about this. I'd recommend you go and watch that to think about that idea a bit more. But just note, this is expected. You see, I think half the time we, we think to ourselves, well, that shouldn't be the case. And, and actually, it shouldn't really be the case, should it? But as we've seen, we're all proud. We all want to be the king. And that means that the message is going to be rejected by some. But, and we really need to make sure we don't forget this, the message will be accepted by others. The harvest is plentiful, remember? So as we go out into the harvest field, it shouldn't take us by surprise that we may be rejected. Jesus said that was going to be the case. But it also shouldn't surprise us that people will accept the message. We just have to tell them. So what happens when the kingdom is proclaimed? Well, our second point there, it brings division. Of course, there is far more to say about this passage than we have time for this morning. And it'd be great to talk to you after this uh, in our Zoom about what I'm saying this morning, what this passage is saying. But perhaps as we were going through, you saw one other theme. One other theme in these verses, perhaps you saw it in verse 11. There's a warning there, isn't there, in verse 11? Or perhaps you saw the phrase, that day, in verse 12. Well, that's our third and final point this morning. What happens when the kingdom is proclaimed? Well, it has spiritual significance. Think bigger. It has spiritual significance. Now, you may have seen the film uh, Wizard of Oz, starring Julie Garland. In it, the main characters, they're on a quest of self-improvement. But at the end of the film, and spoiler alert, I mean, the film came out in 1939, so if you haven't seen it yet, I think this is fair game. They peek behind the curtain to see all the magic happens, and it's a complete and utter letdown. But here in Luke chapter 10, 
Jesus is giving us a peek behind the curtain to see what is happening on the bigger scale. And he makes us think bigger to see the spiritual significance of what is going on. We're told in verse 17 that the messengers returned to Jesus and they're returning with a spring in their step, aren't they? The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. You see, even though they've been rejected by some, they still return with joy. And why is that? Well, because they're seeing the eternal consequences of their actions. Their actions have spiritual significance. As they've gone telling the people the good news, as they've been proclaiming the kingdom, they've seen the results. Even the powers of darkness are submitting to them. But Jesus wants them to think bigger. Even bigger than that, Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. See, Jesus is saying that as the ordinary followers go out proclaiming the kingdom, as they tell people about the king, well, that's how Satan is ultimately going to be defeated. In fact, he carries that on in verse 19. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, that's this verse here isn't to tell us to hot-foot it down to Whipsnade Zoo. I mean... And to get in on the dangerous animal enclosure, that's, well, that's just silly. The idea of these snakes and these scorpions is meant to remind us of times in the Old Testament where God had protected his people from the attacks of Satan. But ultimately, it takes us back to a promise found right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, that a descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head. You see, Jesus is giving his ordinary disciples the authority to bring that about. It's all through his words. Through proclaiming the kingdom of God, these things happen. You see, as people accept or they reject the message, as they accept or they reject Jesus, they're showing where they're going to stand on that final day. They're either going to stand with the king or they're going to stand against him. And Jesus has already shown us that you don't want to end up on his wrong side. You could even say that to point out modern catchphrase, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. However, that shouldn't be the reason for rejoicing. Instead, have a look at verse 20. The rejoicing should come from knowing that these followers have their names written in heaven. See, that's the goal of this whole thing. It's not judgment of the king. It's not judgment that followers of the king should be rejoicing in. Instead, we should be rejoicing in salvation. I mean, that idea of salvation has flowed all the way through Luke's gospel so far. Salvation is the aim of the game. And that idea, it shouldn't just bring the disciples joy. It actually brings Jesus joy. Did you see that? Verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. See, as this message goes out, it saves people. And that brings joy to God. The whole Trinity sharing that joy. You can see the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit all in union there in verse 21. That salvation is given to anyone who humbly comes to the Lord Jesus. Those people who take off that crown that they've given themselves and have, uh, and have Jesus as their king. People who are like little children 
as Jesus says here. That is what brings Jesus joy. That is what pleases God. And our message of joy, that salvation, well, it only comes through Jesus. That message that the ordinary followers of Jesus have is what people need to know in order to know God. What people need in order to come into relationship with him. Can you see that in the final three verses here in this passage? All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In effect, Jesus is saying here, the only way to God is through him. So that makes this message that those ordinary followers of Jesus have so, so important. As Jesus explains here, there were many who wanted to see this in the past. Many kings and prophets, those people who were telling the good news in advance to people. People like John the Baptist, actually, like we were thinking about earlier. They wanted to see all these things that Jesus would physically do. But the disciples, the ordinary disciples, the followers of Jesus here, they're the ones who are blessed. They're the ones who can see and hear what Jesus is doing. They are, as Jesus has already said, verse 28 of chapter 7. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So what are these ordinary followers of Jesus going to do with this message? Well, hopefully they're going to go forward and share it. Because this message has spiritual significance. So what does that do to your picture of telling your friends about Jesus? Is it just a small and insignificant conversation that doesn't really matter that much? Is it something that is weak and powerless? See, if we've really grasped what Jesus is saying here, we can't say that any longer. We've been given a peek behind the curtain and we need to think bigger. See, the, the worker in the office, as they share the good news of Jesus in the kitchen, they're driving back the kingdom of Satan. As the grandchild is telling their grandparent about the king, they're bringing about God's eternal plan. As the parent stands on the school gate, they're proclaiming the kingdom that is bringing salvation to all sorts of people. Or as the kids sheet this morning, if you're doing the kids sheet, Satan is squished, sinners are saved, and Jesus has joy. What happens when the kingdom is proclaimed? Think bigger. There is spiritual significance. So the question is, do you get it? See, the ordinary Christian has been given all the authority they need to declare the good news of Jesus to our world. Christian, do you grasp that? Jesus has given you a role in the worldwide harvest. You're like a John the Baptist. You're like an Isaiah. You're like an Elijah to the world around you. You see, the people at the time Luke is writing, they were getting people ready for the visit, the first visit of the king. And we're kind of in a similar situation, aren't we? It's not the first visit of the king, but Jesus has said 
that he will return and that people need to be ready for that. If you don't know what to think about this Christianity thing, well, can I thank you first for listening? But can I just point out one thing that this means for you, one really important thing? You see, that message that you've heard from a friend, maybe, or from your neighbour, or from me this morning, it requires a response. It demands a verdict. You see, the message of Jesus is to be heard, and it, it does have spiritual significance. As this passage says, peace to this house, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Please don't reject it like these towns here do. So what have we seen this morning? What happens when the kingdom is proclaimed? Well, it may feel weak. You may worry that you're going to be rejected. It might seem insignificant. And for some, like the original readers of this, it may even mean death. But the results are massive. And now is the time for salvation, so it is urgent. The worldwide harvest is collected. It will bring division, but there is spiritual significance. Let me pray for us in light of this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the message of his kingdom, the message of sins forgiven and peace with you. We pray this morning that you would use us to further that kingdom into our town of Hemel Hempstead. Would we pray for workers to go out and then would we do so? Father, we pray for our town to be saved. Would you help us all to consider all that we've heard this morning and respond in the way that you would have us do? And we ask all of that in the name of our Lord and our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen.